uh, look into Psalm 40. I'd like to read the entire psalm. So if you'll follow along. I waited patiently for the Lord. Does this sound familiar? And he inclined to me and heard my cry and brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay, and placed my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps firm. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and will trust in the Lord. How blessed is the man who has made the Lord his trust and has not turned to the proud nor to those who lapse into falsehood. Many, O Lord my God, are the wonders which you have done and your thoughts toward us. There is none to compare with you. If I would declare and speak of them, they would be too numerous to count. Sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired. My ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have proclaimed glad tidings of righteousness in the great congregation. Behold, I will not restrain my lips. O Lord, you know I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your loving kindness and your truth from the great congregation. You, O Lord, will not withhold your compassion from me. Your loving kindness and your truth will continually preserve me. For evils beyond number have surrounded me. My iniquities have overtaken me so that I am not able to see. They are more numerous than the hairs on my head, and my heart has failed me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. Make haste, O Lord, to help me. Let those be ashamed and humiliated together who seek my life to destroy it. Let those be turned back and dishonored who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha, aha, let all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Let those who love your salvation say continually, The Lord be magnified. Since I am afflicted and needy, let the Lord be mindful of me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. Let's pray. Our Father, we bow before you this day, very much aware that you are the God who hears the cries of your people. Lord, we thank you that you also hear the cries of those who will humble themselves and who will turn to you in faith. We thank you that you are the God who inclines to people like us who don't deserve you to even give us a moment of your attention. But we thank you that your heart is indeed full of compassion. We thank you that your truth is a firm foundation upon which we can find steadiness in life and stability. So, Father, as we open this portion of your word and look into it and just merely draw a few observations from this rich text, we pray, Father, that you might, by your Spirit, apply the truths that we need to hear so that our hearts will be tuned to you. And, Lord, that you might, again, incline your ear to us as we cry out to you in proper response. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. 
I came across this quote this past week. I thought it was helpful as a beginning point here. No matter where you are in life, whether up or down, whether soaring or struggling, there is a psalm that speaks directly to the spiritual state of your heart. The primary purpose of the book of Psalms is to direct our hearts toward God in every experience of life. Now, I do not know the state of your heart today, but I know that my heart was in a bad state earlier in the week. It's been a tough uh, week for me in many ways, but I'm thankful that God has known where I've been. and He knows where we are today. It's possible that some of you have walked through a deep valley this week. Others of us may have been walking on the heights in joyous delight. The Christian faith speaks to every situation of life. We find in the book of Psalms not only expressions of lofty worship, but we also find agonizing struggles of a soul before God. Both of these and everything in between those extremes are found in the Hebrew hymnal that we call the book of Psalms. And today we're looking now at Psalm 40, written by King David. And he begins the poem reflecting on and looking over his shoulder at a low point in his life. And he explains how God rescued him. And I'm going to say, I'm going to look at the first four verses, are the first point in which we're going to think a little bit about God rescuing him. That's different from your notes, I messed up there, but for one, verses one to four we'll say. And then in the middle of the section of this psalm, we're going to briefly just learn how he has been helped to see things now from a new perspective. Because having seen the first thing happen in his life, now he sees things differently in verses five to ten. And then in the last section, 11 to 17, I want us to focus finally on another lesson from David's experience that will help us, and that is he faces another affliction in his life. We don't know exactly what kind, but we'll consider that as well. So first of all, let's look in our notes then the testimony of one whom God lifted up. The testimony. He says there in verse 40, God brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay. I cannot imagine a more desperate situation than the the one David found himself in. He says, not only is it just a pit, it's a pit of destruction. You're You're not going to be able to make it if you're left in there on your own. And then worse than that, there is miry clay in the bottom. And since the Psalms are poetry, I'm going to assume here, and I think it's fair to do so, that David is not necessarily speaking literally here. He's using metaphorical language to describe an earlier situation in which he felt trapped. He felt desperate. And the words he uses bring to mind the miserable time in his life. There he is at the bottom of a pit. pit that has steep walls all the way around him. And those walls mean that there is no means of escape from that pit. 
even worse, his feet are not standing on solid ground. His feet are stuck in what I call muck and mire and mess at the bottom of that pit. And he's probably slipping and sliding around. He's not even able to hardly stand up. It's such a mess. No matter how hard he tries, there is no getting out of the mess he's in. Have you known yourself to be in such a situation in life? You ever gotten yourself into a mess and feeling like you're in a bind and you run out of options? Do you know what it's like to descend so low in your life that you have nowhere to look but up? There are all sorts of pits that people like ourselves can sink into. There is obviously the pit of sin, which we all have slipped into. This pit represents that which takes place when we get down into a deep pit because we've made bad choices and because our hearts have desired the wrong things. And David at one point in his life certainly knew what this pit was like because if you know his life story, he fell into temptation one day when he should have been out leading the army like a great captain and king that he was. He stayed home and had time on his hands and he was noticing that there was a a very attractive woman that was in a rather compromising situation and he sought out this woman, had an affair with a married woman. As if that was not enough, of descending down low into this pit of sin, she, she, come to find out, got pregnant. And so when David learns that, he makes a number of unsuccessful attempts to try to make it look like her husband must have been the father, but that wasn't the case because he never was intimate with his wife. He'd been off fighting a battle. And so David had to go further in his decline down into this pit of sin. And he hid the sin... And he sought and schemed and eventually found a way to have her husband killed by conspiracy. So David went on with his life, trying to keep it a secret, but his conscience would not let go of him. It did a number on him, and the guilt that he began to experience was robbing him of his health, that was robbing him of vitality, It was weighing so heavy upon him that he could hardly even live. He was so depressed. You read Psalm 32, you read Psalm 51, and you'll read the writings of a man who indicates it was the heaviest burden he ever could have borne. He was in the pit, the pit of sin. And I'm sure there are some of us here today who never intended to get into the moral mess you have found yourself in. One sin led to another sin, which led to a worse sin, which led you into even more sin, and you don't see a way out. I've been thinking about what that must have been like. I've been reading about a story of a woman named Rachel. Interestingly enough, she was raised in Hong Kong. Her parents were missionaries. But when it came time for her to go to college, she came back to the States. She settled in Texas. And the stress of facing this new situation, this quote-unquote strange culture, nothing against people who live in Texas. (laughs) 
But if you were raised in Hong Kong and you come back to Texas, let me tell you, she didn't know how in the world she would fit into anything or anybody. So she was working for a while as a waitress, lonely, looking for somebody to show her love. Met some man, young man. Next thing you know, she became pregnant. And consulting with one of her co-workers, who was a fellow waitress, she spent $200 at Planned Parenthood and thought that that would solve her problems. She descended down into the pit of sin. Maybe you know what that's like. Maybe you know that you yourself have struggled with something in your past you can't seem to escape. It just keeps following you like a chain all the time. And it's friends, I hope you'll see that in this text, you're not alone in being in that pit of sin. We're all there. I'm not talking about just extraordinary, excruciatingly awful sins that some of us equate on a high list of those. I'm talking about we all have descended down into that pit. We've all failed in our attempts to somehow move ahead in our life because why? Because we keep dragging this chain of all of our offenses before God. Many times if we look at our lives, you say, instead of moving forward, I seem to have gone backward. You never expected to be at this place, at this stage in your life. For some of us, you may be struggling with same-sex attraction. You may be struggling with an addiction to pornography. You may be struggling with gluttony. You may struggle with financial debt. You say, I am way out of line here. I've just made so many bad choices. I'm in a deep, deep pit. I don't see my way out. Some of you have somehow found yourself into a situation in which you say, I don't see what it's going to take to get me out of here. I find it interesting that there are different kinds of pit. That's one generalized one. There's also the pit of sorrow I've been thinking about. Because if you are filled with grief, you have dealt with loss in your life, and it begins to close in on you, you begin to wonder if the cloud of your mourning will ever lift and you'll ever see the sun rise again. Because sadness seems to be your best friend. Perhaps you know what it's like to be in that pit. It's quite dark in that muck and mire. Others of us may be stuck in the muck and mire of loneliness, too. Because oftentimes when you get down into the pit, you feel as though you are cut off from everyone else. They don't understand what you're going through. They do not have any inkling of an idea, the struggle that's going on inside your heart and your life. And you live every day as if the walls surrounding you are sort of barriers keeping other people from really knowing the real you. People speak to you as they pass you by, but you feel cut off from people. You feel the heavy weight of solitude and being alone. Again, I don't know which pit you're in. There's an endless list of those. Whatever your pit is, I want you to think about the fact that you have indeed faced a similar situation as David. You're in a desperate situation, and there's no way out. 
Then I want you to look, my friend, at this wonderful psalm in which we read in verse 1. David's got his feet stuck and slipping around in this muck and mire in the bottom of this pit. He is absolutely alone. He is desperate. He is in a bad place. And when you look at verse 1, we read that he waited patiently for the Lord, and the Lord inclined to him and heard his cry. Did you ever think that the pit that you're in may actually serve a good purpose? You say, oh, it is miserable. I understand that. David would concur with you. He was a very miserable man. But he said, in thinking about what happened to his heart and what was going on inside of him, when he was down in that pit, his heart was lifted up to God. He cried out to God. And did you ever think that the pit that you're in would serve a purpose to turn you while you're in that pit to seek God as you've never sought Him before? Could it be that that pit may have served as a what I would call a severe mercy from God? Taken from the Sheldon Van Auken book, Severe Mercy, which I would recommend you're reading sometime. A severe mercy in which you would then find that this pit would serve to bring you to call upon God, to seek God, to seek His hand of mercy, reaching down to where you are in that pit, and that He would rescue you. You say, well, let me, ask, let me tell you something. So I've been in this pit, I've been seeking God, I've been crying out to Him, and I've asked God to help me. He didn't answer me. I'm still there. I realize that may be where some of you are today. May I direct your attention back to verse 1, and I'm just going to make three observations here under this first point. May I suggest you keep looking to God is the first thing I would suggest. David's pit experience lasted not just a short while. You say, well, how do you know that? It doesn't say in the text how long he was there. Well, look what he says. I waited patiently for the Lord. That would seem to suggest to me that he's not just there for about 20 minutes. He's there for quite a long time. Because you can't be patient if you're in a hurry. And so he's down in that pit and he is crying out to God and crying out to God and crying out to God over, I would suggest, quite a while. And that's why he called it a pit of destruction because he says, this is going on long enough that I am not going to make it here. He thought he was a, a goner. And God, my friend, does not intervene according to our timetable. Sometimes God delays His rescues in order to build in us qualities that we would never gain if we receive what we asked for the moment we asked for it. For example, have you ever cried out to God, Lord, make me patient right now. Not going to happen. It takes time sometimes. Number two, God uses pit experiences to humble us. Having your feet in miry clay 
may be God's way to teach us how much we are in desperate need of His grace. We are in desperate need of His power. We're in desperate need of His presence. We're in desperate need of His forgiveness. Some of us live every day with a nagging sense of our moral failures, our moral guilt before God. And we carry the heavy burden of shame and guilt before an all-knowing, all-seeing God. And we know we've messed up. We don't deny that. We're able to admit that for some of us. We admit we've done wrong. But in making that admission, we're also admitting we know God knows all about all we've done wrong. And in making that admission... We're admitting that we've reached the point where finally we're able to admit, along with David, that we're admitting our sin to God and we need His cleansing, we need His forgiveness, we need to cry out to Him to do in us what we cannot do for ourselves, to make ourselves right with God. So David cried out in Psalm 32 when he was down in that pit of sin. He said, I acknowledged my sin to you, God, And my iniquity, I didn't hide it. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you did forgive the guilt of my sin. What an awesome transformation took place with a man who's stuck in the muck and mire, realizing he needs God to do a mighty work in him, and he opens his heart to God, seeks God, humbly humbles himself, and God responds in such a gracious way manner. I go back to the story of Rachel who after working as that waitress eventually went on and took art classes in college. She finally did start getting into her education and she found that it was very clear among some of her professors they kept telling her you really have quite a gift when it comes to art. And in the midst of her advancement there she did meet a very impressive and to her, a handsome young man who kept claiming, again, promising her his undying love. He was a man interested in theatrical studies and things, and so when it came time that he kept pursuing her, he finally asked her to marry him, not once, but numerous times, and each time she would turn him down. And there came a point when she said no, that her refusals sent him into a rage. And that rage scared her. And so she, in her fear, said, yes, let's get married. So she married this man only to descend into a life of oppression by a man who was mentally, emotionally, and physically abusive. She found herself, again, in a pit, a deep pit. Again, I don't know where you are, But my friend, I would say this to you. Our God is a God who can provide a remedy that we all desperately need, and it's not found inside of ourselves. It's found in God, who has provided His Son, Jesus Christ, as one who is a rescuer of sinners like you and me. He has provided a Savior whose love resulted in that Savior lowering Himself down into our pit. And He takes on our muck and mire on Himself, and He's the one who lifts us up out of that pit. And in so doing, He Himself dies in order to give us life. 
in order to give us cleansing and we no longer have that muck and mire of guilt and shame on us anymore. And by his powerful resurrection, he's lifted up out of that pit to show that he is victor over that awful mess of sin. I wonder, has your pit experience driven you to God or has it driven you away from God? Has it left you asking for grace from God, humbling yourself? Has God, my friend, let me just say this here very clearly, God is a God who is able to lift you up. I don't know who you are. I don't know what your story is. God is able to lift you up from that pit. He is able to give you new life in Christ. He is able to change your heart. He is able to give you a new identity. He is able to give you a new standing before holy God. You go from being guilty to being forgiven. From being condemned to being a child of God. God is able to rescue the most despairing person and give them the gift of hope and peace. I return again to the story of Rachel. She was in the worst of all situations. She was not bathing. She was not getting out of her bed. And she felt like there was no reason for her to be alive. And one day, when God had brought her to the point where she was at the end of her rope, she saw upon a bookshelf, a book that somebody had given her, she'd never read it before, Peace with God by Billy Graham. She pulled that book down for the first time in her life, began to read, what did Christ do for her out of love, in mercy, in grace? And through the reading of that book, began to understand how much God provided her hope that God can lift even her out of that pit of her own sin and give her new life. And she had a life-transforming encounter with the living God who saved her and rescued her and gave her a new identity. Not because she all of a sudden did a bunch of new things differently, but because she surrendered to Christ and said, Lord Jesus, thank you for dying for me. Thank you for coming into my pit and letting me escape the one I deserve through your death on the cross and resurrection from the dead. Would you look now at the second point here? I want us to notice that the psalmist talks about the reflections of a heart. The reflections of a heart that's been looking up to God. Verses 5 to 10. Look at verse 5. The psalmist says, Many, O Lord my God, many are the wonders which you have done, and your thoughts toward us. There is none to compare with you. If I would declare and speak of them, they would be too numerous to count. When we've been patiently waiting upon the Lord and the Lord comes to us with unmerited grace and favor and He lifts us up from where we deserve to be, my friend, it always brings about an incredibly amazing change in perspective when God shows us grace. While in the pit, I would imagine most of us have a perspective that is preoccupied with somehow fixing our perplexing problem or our dilemma. Our eyes, that's all we can see is our problems and our perplexing situation. But if you've been lifted up 
by the gracious power and grace of God through Jesus Christ. You've been delivered by His gracious hand. You are conscious of God who does love and care for you. You are amazed at His concern for you, for the fact that He would show you such tenderness and care. And certainly one lesson that we need to learn here in this text is that God sees us even when we're in the pit. It is God who knows our struggles. It is God who is ever mindful of our situation in life. David wrote another psalm, Psalm 139, in which he talks and reflects about God sees and knows everything about me. Wherever I am in the darkest, darkest, darkest place, he knows where I am. Our way is not hidden before God. Do you believe that, my friend? Do you live your life assuming that God has just lost sight of you and he doesn't care about you, has no knowledge about you and what you're facing? That's not true. God knows where you are in life. He's intimately acquainted with all of your ways. And does your, God, does your heart ever then reflect on where God has delivered you from and what he's done by his grace? Does your heart ever reflect upon God's blessings? I go back to the story of Rachel again. Fast forward, she eventually fled for her life from this husband. And so a divorce later and a lost job later, she finds herself living back with her retired parents who are now back in the States, and she's really in a tough spot, but she's not where she used to be in her heart. And so while she's there, she begins to really take up this, this hobby, this passion, this career of being a potter. And so she sits in front of that wheel hour after hour, creating all sorts of amazing things out of clay. And as she does so, she's reading the prophets. She reads Jeremiah 18 and other passages in Isaiah and other prophets, and she begins to see clearly there's some insights about God that she had never really thought much about, realizing that God is the potter and we, people that he's made, we are the clay. So she realizes that God has formed her in her life, it was God's prerogative to sometimes at different moments of her life smash some of her dreams and smash some of her plans and to reform those dreams and plans and rework things, creating Rachel into a useful vessel in the hands of the potter who made her. For some of us, Grace should cause us to think and have a different perspective on where we are and why we are here and what it's all about. And so David goes on to say that in his situation, verse 6, he talks about being in that pit experience gave him what he had not had before that, it seemed, and that is a heart that was instructive. He says God has actually opened his ears, and literally it means he has carved open his ears making him aware that his heart perhaps had deceived him before. He's now learning insights that he's never seen before. But I assure you, David realizes God is not impressed just because I become more religious. It's not about me becoming a more religious person and doing all sorts of little rituals before God. God delights when we have a teachable heart. God delights when we truly honor him from our heart. God is the one who sees us and knows our thoughts. He sees and understands what our motivations are. You say, well, that makes it all the more troubling because 
even when I do things that seem to be pretty decent in trying to get my life on the right, a better pattern because of grace of God, a lot of my motives are still pretty poor. I do a lot of stuff for myself. And so David slips into this amazing text in which he begins to talk about the Messiah here. He talks about the ultimate one whose, whose ears were open to the Father, the one who really has a heart to obey and always did obey. It is Jesus the Messiah who is found in these verses because Jesus came as one who he says in John 6, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, he says, but the will of him who sent me. It is Jesus who, according to the writer of Hebrews, chapter, uh, uh, chapter 10, verses 5 through 7, quotes these verses right from Psalm 40 and points to Jesus Christ as the only person who was able to keep the law of God. None of us can keep God's word well or perfectly. But Jesus did. It was his perfect obedience, his death on the cross that inaugurated the new covenant which says that God by his spirit begins to work on the inside of us, taking the truth and applying it to our hearts and teaching us in terms of our inner motivations and working on our hearts on the inside, not just keeping a bunch of rules on the outside. It is through Jesus that we can enjoy the blessings of the gospel. That is what we derive from his obedience. We gain the blessings that he earned and, and gained for us. And God has the power to change our hearts so that we can begin to have new motivations. We can actually learn to untangle some of the, the, the reasons as to why we do what we used to do, and now we have new reasons to do them because we're so thankful and so appreciative and so amazed to be set free in Christ. See, the pit experience that David endured pointed him toward the gospel. It pointed him toward the Messiah. Only Jesus is able to live that life of perfect obedience. And the gospel reminds us that only Jesus' merit, only his saving death, are able to provide us what we are in need of, and that is we are in need of outward justification, that is to have a right relationship with God and be, accepted, be, accept, be acceptable before God. We need that, but we also need inner transformation. And that's what we find in the gospel. Jesus Christ. The more we understand the blessings of the gospel, which we receive by faith, the more as you read these verses 9 through 11 in this part of the psalm, you begin to realize that the gospel is going to spill over into blessings of those around us. People are going to sense there's something going on inside of me. I'm going to talk in a different way. I'm going to refer to Christ and what he's done for me. I just can't help but give him thanks and praise because he's changed my life. He's brought me up out of that pit. All on the basis of grace. I could speak another 20, 30 minutes on that too, but I'm going to just summarize point number three here. Verses 11 to 17 have a different sense to them because as you read down through those verses, he's thankful for God's mercy and kindness and compassion. But he admits in verse 12, he says, my heart has failed me. Verse 17, he says, surely I am afflicted, I am needy. You say, well, I thought at the beginning of the text, he says he, 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 he uh, brought him up out of that pit. Yes, he did. But now he finds himself right back into some form of affliction and suffering and difficulty that has overwhelmed him. Point number three. We read here the continuing process of being lifted up to God. 
It's a process. We continually are needing to have our hearts lifted up to God. The latter part of the psalm here is great, reminding us that having been put his feet on solid ground, that solid ground, my friend, is not a bed of ease with no more problems when you come to Christ. What we find out here is that he's been delivered, yes, from that pit, but now it doesn't prevent us from the un- ongoing difficulty and trials that he goes through in life. Look at verse 17 again. I am Not I was, I am afflicted and needy. The fact that David had a new attitude and a new outlook on life did not make him immune from further struggles from within and from without. Trials are not exceptional. They are the norm. That might be worthy to write down. Trials are not exceptional. They are the norm. You say, how do you know that? James 1, 2. Whenever you experience troubles, not, well, you might. No, whenever. It's going to happen. I wonder if one of the reasons for the hardships that we face throughout our lives is that God wants to have our hearts tuned to Him. Turning to Him, looking to Him, constantly asking for help. Wasn't that the Apostle Paul's experience? I mean, here he was, a very successful missionary, accomplishing much for the kingdom of God, extremely uh, seeing God work in extremely powerful ways. And he was given an amazingly unusual and unique privilege that hardly anybody else would have ever received. And God chose to humble him and continually make him rely on his grace. And so 2 Corinthians 12 Paul says he was afflicted with a, a thorn in his side, not just some little thorn from a rose bush. We're talking a stake in his side, a tent peg, if, as it were. He's talking about something extremely, excruciatingly difficult. You just can't ignore it. But as a result of that, Paul says, I am now what? I'm learning to, result, to, to rely upon God's strength, his help, his grace that's sufficient for every day. No matter what difficulty you're going through, no matter what kind of struggle or challenge you're facing, my friend, you can be confident that God has an eternal purpose in that. He will not withhold His mercy from you in the middle of that trial and testing. I go back to the story of Rachel one more time. She sits there at her wheel, and interestingly enough, after she has formed this incredible picture, it is a beautiful work of art, even has the handle on it, After it's been formed, it is just amazing. The spout, everything is just right. She takes that pitcher and she smashes it right back down onto that wheel and begins to re-wedge that lump of clay, pushing out all the bubbles again, pushing it into one solid lump again, and she forms that into a new vessel. And she applies very carefully a certain amount of pressure, just enough pressure as she puts her thumb in a certain place, pushes her fingers out a little bit more and watches it change in very subtle ways. She takes that vessel, which is like now another bowl, and she has carved into that bowl little tiny images and symbols and decoration on the outside. She's actually dug into that clay with its instrument. 
And then she takes that clay bowl and she lifts it up carefully and puts it into an oven. And she cranks the heat up in that oven after it's dried first. Then she puts it in the oven and she bakes that bowl till it becomes red hot. And as a good potter, she keeps her eye on the clock and she knows it's it's too soon to take it out. She'll leave it in a little longer. And at just the right moment, she will take that out very carefully and she will let it sit And now that clay bowl has had a change of character. It is now hardened. It is now firm. It is now solid. It can support things that are heavy in it. And it has been transformed through the fiery furnace. And she now knows it has been fit, made fit for use in the way she chooses to use it as she now finally begins to paint it and decorate it and make it the way she wants. My friend, the same is true of how God works in our lives. He may turn the heat up at times, but he knows what he's doing. He knows how much heat it takes. He knows how long we need to be in it. And he will deliver us. He will help us through it if we know and are trusting in his perfect will. Because either in this life or in the life to come, he will finally bring us to that completion and make us into that beautiful vessel, useful for his purposes, having brought us up out of the miry clay. He makes us into a beautiful vessel for his glory. Let's pray. Father, I don't know what kind of pit any one of us may be in, but Lord, I know I've been down in that pit in my life. Oh, how I thank you that you heard my cry. Oh, I will never stop thanking you for the mercy and grace you've shown to me in the gospel. I thank you, Lord, there are many people here today who have seen you bring them up out of that miry clay. And Lord, I thank you for the beautiful ways in which I see you work in a number of lives and seeing the transforming power of the gospel. Lord, I just pray today that that same power of the gospel would work among our midst today. If there's someone here today, Lord, who finds himself down in that pit, that they would turn to you, cry out to you, Lord, not give up, keep seeking Christ. They might know, Lord, you are merciful. You are the God who can lift us up And that you, Lord Jesus, will come down into that pit. You loved us enough to come down into this sinful world. And you are willing to take on yourself our sins. And bestow upon those who trust in you and who repent of their sins. The garments of righteousness. Cleansed. Clean. Amazingly transformed. Oh, Father, I pray that your spirit would do a mighty work pointing people to you as the deliverer, you as the rescuer, you as the one who can bring anyone out of that pit of sin and place their feet upon a rock, and that rock is Christ. Father, I pray that for those of us who are know what it is to have that gracious work of you in our lives, some of us, Lord, have gone through some trials, fiery trials, I pray that you'd help us to keep trusting you as the sovereign and all-wise potter who knows what you're doing. 
Teach us to trust you, we pray. And Lord, may your praise be on our lips. May other people hear us testify that you have shown us unbelievable grace. You have shown us unbelievable mercy. And may our Lord, may we be a channel of pointing others to you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.